Psalm 119, 169 for our last uh, explanation in this uh, series on Psalm 119, our memory psalm selection of the month is the Tav section, the final section of Psalm 119. I've decided uh, to preach on it this morning for edification. So our reading will begin at 169. Will you stand with me now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all of your commandments are righteous. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you and let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. One way we tend to read the Psalms is emotionally. And... um, I don't think that's a bad thing, or I don't think it's a negative thing. One way to read the Psalter as a believer is to seek to identify with the profound and powerful emotional expression located in the very inspired poetry of the Psalter. And I say it's not entirely wrong to do that, uh, because as John Calvin points out, the Psalter is an anatomy of all parts of the soul, And it's designed, at least in part, to teach us as believers how to feel. But sometimes when we read the Psalter emotionally, it can lead us to be just a bit confused about what's going on. For example, you can feel the powerful avalanche of emotion in the string of prayer requests in this portion, right? Seven of eight of the verses contain a prayer to God. Let my cry, give me understanding, let my supplication deliver me, let my lips, let my tongue, let your hand, let my soul seek your servant. This is powerful. It's moving. And yet it's a bit bewildering. If we simply seek to latch on to and identify with the emotional pitch of this top portion of Psalm 119, we may not yet feel as solid as we do in our emotional response because we're not quite sure why it's so powerfully emotional. And so one of the things that we want to do when we think about this emotional nature of the Psalter, and particularly this portion, is grounded in something solid. What in the world is the cause or the reason for the overflow of emotion? You see, when we lay hold of that, this identification becomes more profound and more instructive and more useful for us. But that means that uh, we're going to have to pull out another tool. We can't just simply rely on a sort of intuitively emotional connection to this portion in order to gain understanding of it. So we need another tool. And that tool is placement. So look with me as your Bibles are open at verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. And then look at the last part of Psalm 176. Seek your servant. Now, what catches the eye here is that the psalm portion begins and it ends with prayer, placement. And the idea of placement is to simply ask and see what is being said and where. 
What is being said is prayer, and where it's being said is at the opening and the closing of the psalm. So as we begin to use this tool of placement, as we pull it out of our psalm interpretation tool belt, we now are able to start unfolding this psalm and peeling back its layers and trying to get at what is it that is the cause of this overwhelming, powerful emotion that is sort of unleashed on us as we read through this section. One way now to get at that, because we know petitions are important here, is to look at what immediately precedes the last prayer request. That's 176a. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. And it's right here in this kernel of the psalm that we begin to see the narrative unfold we begin to understand what precisely it is that leads to the avalanche of prayers. And the problem is peril. The problem is peril. More specifically, the problem is spiritual peril. I've gone astray like lost sheep. One commentator seeks to bring it into focus for us by saying, by invoking God as a shepherd, he begs him to bring him back into the fold. The string is moral and spiritual and ethical. And so Psalm, 170, uh, Psalm 119 concludes with a staggering confession. I'm straying. I'm straying spiritually. I'm in crisis spiritually. I'm drowning in my sin. And so what he does is he cries out for help. Seven of the eight verses peppering the throne of grace with cries for immediate help. Spiritual peril is the backbone of the narrative here. But the psalm is not all doom and gloom or darkness. In fact, a, a ray of gospel hope shines right through the window in this verse, as in the very prayer request itself, as you can see in 176b, he identifies himself as your servant. You see, even though he is straying, even though he is sputtering spiritually, even though it feels like his life is spinning out of control, even though he's drowning and suffocating under his sins and his temptations, and the weight of dishonoring God by his life, he still has a sense of identity. I'm your servant. And what does he do? He exercises hope by crying out, seek. That is an expression of hope at one and the same time as it is belief that there's something which is help. As he cries out, seek, he's expressing hope. And the very hope he looks for is help. So I'm entitling our message this morning, Hope in Help. Hope in Help. His hope is in the help of God. His hope is in Christ. His hope is in the help of God's Word. And so in this portion, we learn that no matter what sin we may be caught in, no matter how we may be damaged by sin and feel trapped by sin, Every single believer who can identify themselves before Christ as a servant, well, they have hope in help. Because Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, won't let his people wander from him. So we want to think this morning about this hope and God's help. We're going to break our exposition into two parts. The cry for help and then the expression of of hope, And what I want to do here is now start the top of the psalm and work our way, picking through the various parts here, where we're already seeing a sort of foreshadowing of the problem, which we said is spiritual peril. So let's work our way through the cries for help as we see them, and we'll notice that they permeate the whole of the psalm. As we start at verse 170, uh, what we read is this. Let my supplication come before me. Deliver me according to your word. 
I think it's important to note uh, this morning, first of all, as we hear this request, let my supplication come before you, is we need to understand that it is an appeal for mercy. That's exactly what supplication means. It is appeal for mercy. And that means we need to think about, biblically speaking, what is mercy? And, And it's as simple as this. Biblically speaking, mercy is help for the pitiful. Mercy is help for the pitiful. One of the great statements biblically on mercy is found in Romans 9.15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Paul accents the sovereignty of God in the administration and distribution of mercy. The flow of mercy out to a sinner rests entirely upon God. It doesn't rest in the individual. It doesn't rest in the church. It doesn't rest in your ability or your efforts or anything. The administration of mercy is entirely uh, based upon and flows from the sovereignty of God and his determination to help the weak and the unlovely and the pitiful. And that's reinforced in the very next verse in Romans 9.16 where he says, so that it's not, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. You see, the way the psalmist brings forth his prayer and sets it before the Lord, he is giving uh, an expression of faith in that. He doesn't present himself as a person who has any right or claim to the mercy of God. He's crying out as one who has faith in God through Christ, and he pleads with him as one who identifies himself as pitiful, as nothing better than a straying sheep. He says, let my cry for mercy come near. In the hope that God will hear him and be gracious to him. In fact, he says, let it come right before your face. Matthew Henry's comment here is instructive. He says, what's implied in it is a sense of his unworthiness and a holy fear that his prayer was not fit to come before God. A sense of unworthiness. You see, this is the prayer offered in faith. I'm not clinging to my works, my righteousness. I'm just coming before you, God, this morning out of the deepest sense and awareness of my sin, my total unworthiness to be heard by you and to be answered by you, and yet... Uh, As soon as we can say that about this expression, this this faith expression, we know from the word of God that it's one that can be uttered and offered and prayed with the deepest sense of confidence that God will hear. And you know that's true because you learned this verse on your mama's knee. Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive Mercy. You see, we are instructed by the word of God to identify ourselves as weak and helpless and miserable and pitiful. And yet at the same time to come straight to the throne of grace and to ask God for mercy. And you know what makes that um, that admonition so powerful? It's the previous verse. It's verse 15 where the preacher says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, therefore let us draw near. You see, the preacher says the ground of seeking divine mercy in a time of need and help is the sympathy of Jesus Christ. He holds out the sympathetic Christ to us and says that the person who stands at the right hand of God, who welcomes us to come into the very presence of the Lord, to seek and obtain that which we need, is one who is sympathetic. In fact, the way he says it is deeply comforting to us and and fits the tone of this psalm as the psalmist identifies himself as a strange sheep because it says... 
He is not one who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but he's been tempted at all points, yet without sin. So he has the capacity to identify with you and sympathize with you. And so this morning, what the psalmist is teaching you is if you are mired in sin, you are drowning in sin, and you are being overwhelmed by your sin, what you do is get right down on your knee and you identify yourself just as the psalmist is here. One who is in dire and desperate need of divine help. You can run to God this morning with all of your sin. There's almost nothing better to hear than that. You can run to God with all of your sin, with all of your failing, with all of your corruption, with all of your shame. And you can be confident that there will be help on the other side because of the sympathetic Christ. So he cries out here in 170, let my supplication come before you. And then he prays, deliver me according to your word. Now, this word deliver fits with our interpretation of the text that this is about somebody who's in deep spiritual distress because the word deliver means to save from a broken relationship with God. That's what it's about. And of course, sin is what breaks a relationship. Sin is what damages and mars it. Sin is what steals from the heart of the believer a sense of, of the nearness of God's presence and His grace. And so he's, he's one identifying himself as one who is in need of this great deliverance. And what he latches onto is what? Well, your word. We have... Um, Time and again, notice the different words or terms for divine revelation in Psalm 119. And there's at least 11, maybe 12 different ones. And so we have at times noted the, the very term uh, and its definition because often it adds color or nuance to what's being said. And, and guess what? Uh, the word, word here means promise. That which is reliable. See, the psalmist sets his prayer before the throne of grace because he's been directed to by the word of promise, the word which is reliable. And that word is simply this. All who are weary and heavy laden can go directly to Jesus Christ and find rest. So he appeals to the Lord based upon promise, the promise of the word of God, that as often as you come to him with all of your sin, he's ready to hear you and deliver you and show you his grace. I spent a little bit more time on the, the first petition because it really sets the table for us, doesn't it? We start to pick up on the nuances and, and overtones which really... Um, uh, Indicate to us what this psalm is about. Spiritual distress and peril. He's cried out for deliverance. Now notice in 173. He cries out for help. Let your hand be ready to help me. For I've chosen your precepts. Now he cries out for help to God. He cries out for support, for aid, for assistance. It's a word that implies total helplessness. And, and I want you to notice the very thing that he applies for. Help from the hand of God. Help from the very hand of God. This is an admission of the weakness of his strength, right? He is down and the only way up is from a hand which is divine and from above. He seeks help and it reminds us of, of that beautiful Psalm 121 we call the Traveler's Psalm. Where, where the psalmist looks off to the horizon as he makes his spiritual pilgrimage and journey to Jerusalem and he sees the ruggedness of the mountains and the potential peril of the terrain which is before him. And he cries out, Where does my help come from? 
as he faces the obstacle of his trials and difficulties, and he immediately responds by saying, My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heaven and earth. It's that kind of divine help which is at the heart of this prayer request. Let your hand be ready to help me. My strength is ineffectual. What I need is nothing less than the help of God. And notice here the basis of the prayer request in the second portion of 173. For I have chosen your precepts. Now, somebody might say, well, doesn't this sound a little bit legalistic? After all, he seems to be appealing to God for help because he has taken the time and made the determination to choose the precepts of the Lord. I thought you said he was straying. And that's where you come back into the terminology that is used here. The word for precepts means authoritative divine commands. In other words, the precepts are the commands of a superior. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I identify myself as nothing more than an inferior. I identify myself as one who is obligated to come under divine authority. This is no claim to self or self-exaltation. This is simply an expression of faith to say, I understand that I come under you and your word of command. And so he cries out, help me. Help me a weak, pitiful, needy servant. How about 174? I long for your salvation, O Lord. For your law is my delight. Here we have this emotional pitch, right? This word long is a word that's full of intensity. It is to be moved emotionally, to be driven by the power of the desire. He longs for something with the deepest sense of longing. And the thing that he longs for is salvation. And Matthew Poole, another really good commentator for the psalms that you need to make sure is in your back pocket when you're reading this altar, says this. He says, um, salvation is salvation from my sins, from my dullness and deadness in thy service, from all inclinations and temptations to apostasy and impiety, and from my corruption." The salvation that he needs is a salvation from sin's power and corruption, which obviously is holding sway over him because of his sinfulness. And so he pleads with God to save him from the dullness of his soul. You ever needed saving from the dullness of your soul? Do you ever need saving from the dullness of your spiritual apathy? Did you never need salvation from sins um, stealing any delight in Christ from you? That's what he's praying for. You see, he's acknowledging what sin has done. It's done an awful work in his life. There's no spiritual vigor. There's no joy in Christ. There's no spiritual vitality. And he knows it. And he knows there's one place to go to get relief. And that's the salvation of God, the saving work of God. So all of that now is kind of like a bunch of breadcrumbs thrown out in the text for you to say, all right, I'm going to get to the point of this psalm. I'm going to begin to understand why uh, we are experiencing this avalanche of powerful, emotional, intense Prayer request. He's in trouble. Now coming to verse 176. And here we're going to pull this apart just a bit more because I think it's very important to do so. He says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. 
for I do not forget your commandments. And, and I want to begin here by examining the prayer. And I want you to notice the self-identification, your servant. I've already mentioned this before, but, but now is the time to, to define it and to refine our understanding of it a bit more. This word servant means to be a bond slave. This word servant means to be the possession of somebody else. It means you have been paid for with cash and you are owned. Well, you know, uh, the New Testament's alive with that, isn't it? One of the Apostle Paul's favorite self-designations is bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bondservant, one who has been bought and paid for with the precious blood of Christ. And so even though he is languishing in the midst of his sin and he's experiencing its dreadful consequences, the one thing he says I can be assured of is Christ owns me and not my own. It's a powerful motive for prayer in the midst of sin is to make the acknowledgement and the profession of faith that we really are owned by Christ. He really does have a stake and interest in us because of the ransom payment of his blood. And so he says, seek. He says, seek. And you know, that, that word means to, to search with the greatest diligence. It is to search with the greatest diligence. And and it's the imperative mood, and we shouldn't be, um, misunderstand here. It's not a command. It's the language of urgency. He, he, he is tugging at, at the heavenly throne of grace with, with every fiber of spiritual energy and strength he has left in him. And he is saying, I desperately need your response. Seek after me with every bit of diligence you can muster. Why? The reason is now expressed here. As he says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Now, I, I acknowledge I, I need to make my case to you. Uh, the going astray could, could be moral, spiritual, and ethical, or it, it could be just providential wandering. Sort of like an affliction. I'm just kind of wandering because of the, the random, the apparent randomness of life and the pressures of life and, and providential hardships. I'm just wandering. So we need to establish which is it? Is this a wandering based upon sin or is this simply a wandering being driven by the sovereign hand of God? Well, Calvin says he's not to be understood as confessing his sins. An opinion erroneously held by many, as if he had been drawn into the traps of Satan. And he says, this is inconsistent with the rest of the verse, which says, for I don't forget your commandments. So Calvin said, this can't be moral, spiritual, and ethical. He hasn't been drawn into the traps of sin by Satan. This is a view that's erroneous. Boy, I don't like to disagree with John Calvin at all. I quote him a lot, as you can tell. but I have to put myself in the class of people who hold an erroneous opinion, according to Calvin. And the reason why I say that is because of the force of this term is just far too strong. Gone astray means uh, to hold a belief or opinion which leads to behavior that has to be corrected. In other words, sinfulness. He has wandered off the path. The term is, is far too strong to, to simply be chalked up to some sort of providential strain or meandering or wandering in life. This is intentional. It is a willful strain based upon sinful thinking that led to sinful action that needed correction. And it's so fascinating to me that Calvin in the midst of his commenting, stops and seeks to fight against embracing his interpretation as if he almost reminds himself of the fact that David did indeed stray, that he was an adulterer, and that he engaged in conspiracy to commit murder. 
And he brings that up and then he just almost just drops it. But just even though the Word of God tells us that David was a man after God's own heart, David was also a man who knew self-inflicted spiritual peril due to his sin. And so he says here, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. And you know, um, gave me some great comfort to read Matthew Henry's comment here. He says, um, weak and unsteady saints are like lost sheep. We are apt to wander like sheep by going astray. We lose the comfort of green pastures and expose ourselves to a thousand mischiefs. Weak and unsteady saints. Is that you? Have you ever wandered? Are you wandering now? This is what Poole, this is what Henry is saying that David is speaking about, the experience of spiritual wandering, that sense of being cut off from the green pastures of the means of grace and the sense and awareness of, of God's fatherly pleasure. Well, if you're not wandering right now, I guarantee you, you will wander. I haven't met a sincere, honest, maturing Christian that hasn't. And so this song portion certainly is written for us then this morning. This is written for the person, the believer, who knows the power of sin and the difficulty of the struggle with sin. And what he does is show us that if that's where we are this morning, that there's help. And that help is in the hope of God. You know, I can't resist bringing up placement one more time. As I said that, I've staked out my position, I think, fairly clearly, and I think it's the right interpretation. But you know, um, what aggravates this uh, string is placement. Is your Bible open this morning? Go back to Psalm 119.1. Psalm 119.1. You might have to turn some pages back. This is a long song. But I want you to notice placement. Verse 1, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And then I want you to look at Psalm 176, the very last verse. I've gone astray like lost sheep. The psalm begins with the proclamation of approbation and blessing upon everyone who seeks to walk in the law of God and have it as his delight. And by the time he gets to the end of the psalm, he says, I've blown it. I've blown it. Do you know what it means to blow it? This top portion says, this is for you. If you know what it means to have blown it. You see, uh, in a sense, you could say, this is Romans 7, before Romans 7 was written. I'm very disappointed with people in the Reformed camp today who disagree with the historic Reformed interpretation of Romans 7. And the historic uh, Reformed interpretation of Romans 7 is basically this, that the Apostle Paul is writing spiritual autobiography as a believer. And here you'll find some of the most um, grimly realistic, gripping, sincere talk of a practice seasoned mature believer as he says, for the good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not want. That's the psalmist. I know, God, your blessing is walking in uprightness. I know that. I know your law is good. I know your law is righteous. I know your law is pure. I know that it directs me into what's right and good and blessed. But I have a sinful heart. And the good that I want to do, I don't do. In fact, I practice the evil I don't want. I'm a straying sheep. That's the right interpretation. 
This is the believer and their struggle. I put myself in the class of struggling sinners this morning, understands what the apostle is speaking about in Romans 7. There's a way we deal with that, though. We don't pretend it's not there. We don't claim it's not a big deal. We don't try to cloak our sins and endless attempts at self-righteousness. We do exactly what the psalmist does here. He confesses. He says, I am a straying sinner. Seek your servant. Here he is in the valley of spiritual peril and he's doing exactly now what the believer ought to do. Cry out to God for mercy. And you know, that's an expression of hope. And the reason why you can pray this prayer this morning, people of God, with all confidence is exactly this, what's bound up in the self-identity of the psalmist here as he says, seek your servant. Matthew Henry gets at this with concision as he says, I have thy mark upon me. He understands that being redeemed, being a bondservant, means that the blood of Jesus Christ leaves a mark upon me. It says, I am owned by Christ. Because I am owned by Christ, I can bring all of my sin to him. I can bring all of my failure to him. I can bring all of my brokenness to him. I can bring all of my weakness to him. And beg and pray and say, seek your servant and know that God will help. You see, our sin doesn't make faith void. It just shows our weakness. And it's a reminder to us and it instructs us in the necessity of Christian humility before God. And then we do what the psalmist does. As he says, seek your servant, for I don't forget your word. You see, he is acknowledging that in the midst of his sin and failing, he still understands himself to be what he is. He's a child of God. <clears throat> and so he utters this prayer. He cries out for help. Let's look now to see, secondly, the expression of hope. And there's a couple of things that we want to see here. The very first uh, expression of hope is, is faith. And I take that from 176b again, seek your servant, for I don't forget your commandments. And here again, we have those terms and we have to think about this because this particular term means the stipulations of the covenant. You see, when God makes covenant with his people and he enters in the covenant of grace with us, he, he, uh, he identifies himself as our God and our redeemer and our Lord and our master and then he structures the relationship with duty. He says, in response to you being delivered out of the house of bondage, now here's what you're to do. You're to walk before me and be blameless. And the covenant spells out those stipulations here as they are identified as commandments. This is the service that is ours. And you see here by saying, I don't forget them. That word forget means I haven't forgotten their implications. They're binding authority. I identify myself as a person who is in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. And I know I have a calling to live up to and I need your help. This is an expression of faith. And so the question begins, emerges here, is what is the way out? And the way out, quite simply, is prayer, seeking God's help. I want you to look right back at the verse before ours in 175. And notice here, what I think uh, probably logically is the second part of the narrative. We've seen the first part of the narrative, the acknowledgement of, of sin and string and confession. And I think this is probably... In, in the, the sequence of the narrative, this is probably second. Notice he says in 175, let my soul live 
that it may praise you and let your ordinances help me. Now, now we have this word help again, don't we? We just saw it in 173. It's, it's an appeal for assistance. It's an appeal for divine aid. And, and what he says here is he wants help from the Lord. But he's very specific about the help that he wants. He wants God's help through his ordinances. The great uh, German commentator Karl Kyle says that the word is the medium of God's hand. It's through the word that God mediates his help to his people. And so what does he cry out for? He cries out to God for help, which is mediated through his ordinances. And this word is about the practical application of the moral principles of the law to life. You see, the problem with the psalmist is he's straying. The promise is that uh, the problem and the peril is that he's breaking the law of God. He's not walking in the path of duty. And so in the midst of all of that moral confusion and spiritual chaos, what help does he seek? He asks God for the help of the ordinances, the practical application of the moral principles of the law. He's pleading with God to say, take me right now wherever I am and show me how to live for you. Have you blown it as a father? Take me to the ordinances. Have you blown it in your marriage? Take me to the ordinances. Have you blown it as a parent? Take me to the ordinances? Have you blown it as a believer in your calling, in your life, in your relationships, in your vocation, in your attitudes, the way you treat people? Take me to the ordinances. Take me to the very practical applications of the law so that I can begin to get my hands on life with your word and put it back into order by submitting to what God has called me to do. You see, this is one of the most desperately needed things when we are in the condition of a straying lost sheep who's disoriented and confused and deluded and aimless. We need concrete, clear, specific direction and guidance about where do I start? And that's exactly what he cries out for God to do. Put my hands on the closest thing that I need to start doing and help me do it. Teach me what I need to do right now. Help me get my hands dirty with life. See, he knows he needs the word. He knows he needs the help of God's word. He knows he needs the correction of the word of God. He knows he needs the conviction of sin which comes through the law of God. He knows he needs the sanctifying vigor of the word. He knows he needs the illuminating guidance of the word. He needs the wisdom of the word to help apply it. He needs the word hidden in his heart that he may not sin against God. You see, what he is crying for in the midst of his sin and failing the Christian life is God to come right alongside him in the midst of the mud and muck of his failing and say, help me. Get me right on track and back on the path. He prays to God, mediate life to my soul through your word. And that leads us now to the top of the psalm. And it's interesting that this hope and help is already signaled in the very first verse. You you could really say this kind of summarizes uh, the theme of his hope. 169, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. This is what he needs. Sin has broken him. It has deluded him. It has deceived him. It has led him into a a kind of lifestyle that needs correction. And here in the opening verse, he's already signaling, this is the solution to my problem. Let my cry come before you. And this word for cry is, uh, is to scream in a shrill voice. 
So what's a, it's a panic kind of thing, isn't it? It's, 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 it's a way of speaking that is riddled with deep emotion and urgency. You don't cry unless you really need help, right? I mean, this is what it is. It's just the, it's full of fervency and vigor and intensity. It says, let it come right before you. It's a very interesting term there. Come before you is a verb that's used all throughout um, the, uh, the descriptions of the Levitical sacrifices. It's used of the worshiper bringing his sacrifice right up to the door of the tabernacle where it's slain. Let it come right. Let it walk it right up. It's as if he's saying, um, let my prayer move from my lips to your ears. Nothing intervening. He says, cry out. This is a prayer uttered in the deepest faith and urgency and concern. And notice what he needs from God. Give me understanding. Correct my misguided, distorted mind and thoughts and behavior. On my count, this is the 14th prayer for illumination in Psalm 119. Just listen to them. Uh, Verse 12, teach me your statutes. Verse 18, open my eyes, they behold wonderful things from your law. Verse 26, teach me your statutes. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts, so meditate on your wonders. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may observe your law. Verse 66, teach me good discernment and knowledge. Verse 68, teach me your statutes. Verse 73, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Verse 108, teach me your ordinances. Verse 124, teach me your statutes. Verse 125, I'm your servant, give me understanding. Verse 135, teach me your statutes. Verse 144, Give me understanding that I may live, and 169, give me understanding according to your word. You see, he loves the word of God. He knows the word of God is the solution to his peril. That's faith. You may blow it in the Christian life, but you can't blow this. The perspective of faith is the word is what I need. It's what corrects me and sets me straight and puts me back on the right path and invigorates my soul. It grants me the illumination insight that I need to connect principle to application in life. He loves the word of God. He's constantly crying out uh, about the word, but he says something here that's critical. Give me understanding. And what that means is he can't do it himself. John Calvin Agreeing with him now has a great comment. He says, It would have been in in vain for David to have asked God to bestow upon him that which he naturally had in himself, or which he might have attained by his own painstaking. In other words, Calvin is saying the very fact that David cries out, Give me understanding, is a betrayal of his inability. Because if he had it within his own power to simply exercise a little spiritual elbow grease and lay hold of this understanding, then he should have done it and he should never ask for it. If it was within his power to grab, you should do it. But Calvin says the very fact that he prays as he does is an indication of the fact that this is a gift which only flows from grace. And it's for servants, blood-bought people, blood-bought sheep. And this is a gift of grace, and it comes as the Spirit of God is sent forth to grant us illumination and understanding. And this is what we need. This is how we get corrected and set on the right path and filled with the right resolve and the holy desires and have the righteous appetites. We ask God to give understanding. And as we do that, we can do it with entire confidence of knowing that when we do, God will hear us and answer us. Reminds us this morning of that great verse in James chapter 1 when he says, If any of you lacks wisdom or understanding, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. Let him ask. But he says in the next verse, But don't come doubting. Because the the person who comes doubting is double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. And God is dishonored with that kind of prayer. 
So you don't have to doubt. You just come as a beggar. You just come as a beggar. And say, God, give me understanding according to your word. This is the way we deal with sin. This is the way we deal with straying. This is the way we keep ourselves in the path. We seek understanding from God that he might take that medium of his word and unleash it upon us so that it will penetrate our heart, that it will bring conviction of our sin, that it will shine the bright light of the word upon the darkness of our understanding, that it will fill us with the strength and the sanctifying vigor that we need as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and drills it deep into our soul to refresh us and strengthen us and and build us up and to empower us. David did us a great favor under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, this is how you live the Christian life because all of us stray. And in the final portion of a psalm that is aglow with praise for the word of God, he says, here's how you use this word of God to live. You begin with confession. You begin by coming before God in all sincerity, honesty, and humility and say, I've blown it. I've blown it. I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I've tried to serve two masters and I was divided in my heart. I am a sheep that's gone astray. So seek me. Seek me. Seek your servant. I I come to you as, as, as nothing more and nothing less than one who's been purchased with the blood of Christ. And for all those who've been purchased with that great ransom, you have all confidence in the hope of God's help. You won't just cry. The words won't just go into the heavens. The Heavenly Father will hear, and the Spirit of Christ will seek. And when we experience that, we do exactly what the psalmist indicates what the believer should do. We express gratitude. Verse 171, let my lips utter praise. For you teach me your statutes. 172, let my tongue sing of your word for all your commandments are righteous. Verse 175, let my soul live that it may praise you. When you experience the hope of God's help, this is what we do. We let our lips utter praise and our tongue sing God's word and our soul praise him. May God all give us strength to exercise hope in his help and know its spiritual joy and vigor. Father, we thank you for this tall portion of this great mountainous Psalm 119. We have enjoyed its pathways We have marked its terms for revelation. We have seen the psalmist's cry, and we have been taught how to live the Christian life. And we thank you for a final lesson today, which teaches us about who we are. We are sinful servants, and we are in need of your your grace to be mediated to us through your word. So we pray, O Lord, this morning that you would by the power of your spirit, unleash your word upon our hearts, that it would correct us, that it would convict us, that it would invigorate us, and that it would fill us with the hope of your help. As we do that, Lord, may you give us strength now to lead a Christian life that glorifies your name. This we ask through Jesus.